This episode will be about venture capital, but let's begin with a simple but very tasty taco. Yes, you heard right, tacos. Everybody loves tacos, right? Let's take a little field trip to Zocalo Food Truck Park right here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. There we head to Mazorca to grab some tasty tacos. We order a couple of Al Pastor tacos, a couple of birria tacos. We also throw in a freshly made horchata to wash it all down. Instead of ordering this directly from the food truck, we scan a QR code to place our order on an app called Cash Drop. Basically, Cash Drop makes it easy for businesses to start selling online directly from their smartphone within just 15 minutes. The experience was seamless, and our order was ready in minutes. And right here, where the connection with our guests and venture capital begins on this episode of Diverse Disruptors. Cash Drop is founded by Ruben Flores. Flores grew up here in Milwaukee. He attended Riverside High School and graduated top of his class. He taught himself how to code, which led him to create the Cash Drop app. Oh, did I forget to mention he was also undocumented, originally from Mexico. One of Flores' first investors and customers was Jesus Gonzalez, owner of Mazorca Tacos and co-founder of the aforementioned Zocalo Food Truck Park. The app launched right at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, and it took off. Then Flores met with Harlem Capital, which was co-founded by our guest Henri-Pierre Jacques. Then in August, Harlem led a seed funding of $2.7 million investment into Cash Drop to scale the young startup. Harlem Capital was very impressed with Flores' story and strong product using minimal resources. With over 500% growth this year, Cash Drop now has over 2,000 customers, including a 13-year-old selling slime kits, Miami's Good Time Hotel that happens to be co-owned by Pharrell Williams. The startup now has 20 employees with plans to grow to 50 to 60 in 2022. Flores is on the way to becoming one of those rare Latino entrepreneurs with the help of Harlem Capital, Tacos, and our guest. From 88.9 Radio Milwaukee, this is Diverse Disruptors, a podcast about leaders, entrepreneurs, and trailblazers who found their own way to innovate and did so with inclusion and accessibility at the forefront. Founded in 2015, Harlem Capital isn't your typical Silicon Valley venture capital firm. Henri Pierre Jacques aimed to change the face of entrepreneurship with Harlem Capital by investing in 1,000 diverse founders in 20 years and Flores happens to be one of them. Henri and his team understood the fact that only 2.6% of VC funding goes to black and brown founders. And back in March of 2020, Harlem Capital closed a $134 million round, you heard right, $134 million round for their second fund to help make their goal a reality. It is truly an accomplishment for a black-led VC firm where only 3% of the investment partners are black. I not only wanted to understand the world of venture capital, but how Henri Pierre Jacques, a Haitian American, became one of the most prominent investors of startups in the country. We begin with his story growing up in Detroit. Yes, I was born in Detroit, where my mom's from. My dad was born and raised in Haiti, but the mother decides where you go with the child. So we went to my grandparents in Detroit. I was in private school most of my life, but I was at a Baptist school from first to seventh grade, uh, which was largely an all-white school from kindergarten to 12th grade. There were maybe 
five black students across all 12 grades. Being one of just five black kids in the whole school, Henri learned what it was like to be the only one in the room to feel eyes on him. And so didn't like really actually like comprehend race until probably fifth grade when I got called the N-word for the first time. How did that transpire? Yeah, I was playing with my friends. Uh, we were playing football against like random kids in, in this park. Uh, I don't remember exactly what happened, but I remember one of the players said it and all my friends like kind of got mad. We like almost started a fight, but we didn't because we were fifth graders. Uh, and you know, then I like had to talk to my mom was like, I knew what the word meant, but I hadn't been called it. You know, you see it in the movies, you hear it in, in songs. So that was the first experience and more things started happening. You know, people touching my Afro, and so at some point, I think it just became apparent, like as you got to middle school and people get older and whatever's happening at home with their parents, like really begins to like reflect on you. Did those experiences, those first um, experiences of dealing with, you know, the racism affected your, your mental state? Like, did it bring on depression, anxiety, stress, or were you just too young to really comprehend it, you think? Yeah, I don't know if I even knew what those words meant back then. I think it's like <laughs> when you're, you know, first, second, third, fourth grade, you're like, you're still a child. Like you have like this like purity to you where like the world hasn't corrupted you yet. By eighth grade, Henri's mom decided to pull him out of that school and enrolled him in another one. The next school was also a private one, but much more diverse. And it was an intentional choice. His mom wanted him to be around more people of color, but more diversity didn't fix everything. And once I got to a school where there was diversity, you actually begin to see like the separation even more. So I think generally people still like to go to their communities regardless of like mm -hmm. uh, integration. And so you, you see that, but it's like, you're actually switching between these communities and you have to like switch your lens. Like, okay, during the day, here are my groups. And then, you know, from 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. I'm with the basketball team, which is largely black. And like a lot of the kids on that team were like from the inner city, were there on scholarships, like lived in the hood. And so like, that's a completely different perspective. And so it was a lot of switching going on like during the day and like in my life. Mm -hmm just because all these different groups like gave different perspectives. Seemed like you had a really strong relationship with your mom. Talk about that relationship with mom and how much um, did she have impact on your life as far as you growing up and doing what you do today? Yeah, so my parents are both doctors. So until my parents got divorced when I was 12, which was when we moved, I switched schools in eighth grade. Um, I largely was hanging out with my, my babysitter or my grandma because my mom works nights, my dad's orthopedic. And then once my parents got divorced, my mom and I moved, I switched schools. You know, now she's like, my dad is still very involved in my life, but like I lived with my mom during mm. the week. So to some extent, like she was a single parent during the week. Mm. And so like our relationship grew and she really took more ownership of me. And I was old enough to not have a babysitter anymore. So she was basically the only person in my life at that point. Uh, and so, yeah, she was super influential. Like even though she was a doctor, she always had side businesses. Uh, she had a pharmaceutical company she was running in Atlanta. Uh, she had multiple like investment real estate properties in Detroit. Yeah, I didn't fully understand it, but like my mom like walking through the stocks and saying, hey, like, you, you know, I'll match it to invest in it. Like all that stuff that like, comes back and you don't realize until you're an adult, like the impact that actually had on you. Uh, when you're a kid, it's kind of annoying, but my mom loves to tell this story where I, you know, she took me over to one of my friends, my friend's home and we we're talking to their parents and I was like, oh, like what stocks do you invest in? You know, I was like 12 or 13 and they like looked at me like I was crazy. My mom was like that. She just like loved like that moment and that she like instilled that into me. And so I do quite like a lot of my interest in the finance to my mom because um, my dad, who's Haitian, is very much like Haitian doctor. Like that's just like the golden <laughs> job and like it's steady, it's consistent. And mm. you can, you know, you always have a job available and a lot of Haitians uh, are doctors. 
and so he always was pushing me that way and my mom kind of like gave me the freedom to go over to the finance side because math was my favorite subject by far in mm. school and so i loved math and i loved money uh pretty early uh and so well, my mom well, like gave me that freedom who doesn't right <laughs> yeah it, it, uh, my mom always said i would eventually stop loving it i think when i was like 24 <laughs> she was like yeah i was wrong <laughs> <laughs> there's a book that my dad loved he wanted to get me to read that you fell in love in middle school i think it was poor dad rich dad, rich dad, dad, dad. Poor talk dad. about yeah that book and why that book was so important to who you are yeah robert kiyosaki so actually one of the few like books that like i fundamentally actually enjoy i don't like to read mm -hmm. i have add i hate reading i hate <laughs> sitting in a room like i can do articles i can read legal documents but i can't read books to save my life not even audiobooks <laughs> and so that book early on did like have a big impact partially also because that book had a game called cash flow which is basically monopoly for adults. Like it's more, it's more about mortgages, job, interest rates. And so like it goes to like a deeper level of monopoly than monopoly does. And so like reading the book and then going through this and, you know, we go around and she would tell me what a mortgage is. And she would tell me like, like, why do you take this over this interest rate? And so like it just gave me a deeper understanding and began to like understand like what the rat race is and like what my mom used to call like manage cash flow. Like how do you get mm. cash flow to come in without you having to work in the rat race? That book plus his mom's mentorship it changed the way Henri thought about money. A shift in mindset he began to understand in middle school. Even if you're rich or poor, like what matters most is like how your mind thinks about things, like mm -hmm. what's the framing. I think that was like always a view. And even for like my my mom, like as somebody who's successful, like she had a very frugal mindset. Like and she learned all of the loopholes, <laughs> regardless how much money she was making, how to save taxes, how to do this, all these random, you know, 401k, RRA, like even even me, which I didn't know until I was older, why my mom even paid me a salary. You can pay your kids up to $15,000 as children if it's from your parent and not get taxed on that money. And so like, she was able to give me the 25, match the 25 to get 50, and then I can invest it in stock like as a pre-tax dollar and not hmm. have to actually count it as income. So talk about your high school journey and what happened in high school that decided to take you on the path to Northwestern and to Harvard. I'm assuming there's something in high school that happened to you that kind of inspired you on this path? Yeah, I mean, you go from being the only one um, to being one of many. I think that's like in two ways, like as a black person, but then also as like one of the smartest people in the class, right? And so I think going from being the only black person to one of 20% plus a range of diversity, like changed my perspective just like on, you know, what I cared about in life. And that's like really where I began to like get a deep yearning for wanting to like be impact the black community, generally speaking. And also like going from like being one of the smartest kids in my prior school to like, you know, average kid at like a top school, you just begin to realize like you're, you're never going to be the smartest person in the room. I and mean, we literally had like kids who were like getting like top 10 in math in the world um, or like people like, who you know, we had the number one ping pong player like in the state who like went to nationals, like all these random things. Like mm -hmm. there's just a lot of smart people. And, you know, the same is true at Northwestern Harvard. Like but, so I got to learn that early. and. A big problem for a lot of minorities when you do come from schools like you're the smartest person at you know an inner city public school and then like reality hits you like you're, you're not mm. the smartest person in, mm. in a lot of these areas because you you know you didn't have access to a lot of these resources and so i think i got an opportunity where like i realized like okay what's gonna be my strength and my strength is gonna be my network like i'm a really good networker and how do i leverage smarter people around me to like make me better and to tap into their networks. Like I'm, you know, you, you can play and practice as much as you want. You'll never be LeBron James. The same mm -hmm. is true for like certain, you know, academics and other things. And so like I had to find ways to like make sure I could work with these smarter people. And 
view it less as a competition. Like, how do we help each other? What can I add value to them? How can they add value to me? Remember this thought, this idea that everyone can win. This is the basis for his later work with Harlem Capital. Henri says his high school experience was actually more challenging than the top-tier universities he would later attend. Between his rigorous studies and the competitive basketball team he was on, he was busy pretty much all day and night and took the bus to and from school on top of that. So you would think by summer he'd be ready to take it easy, lay back. But instead, Henri did the opposite. He enrolled in prep programs to get ready for college. I did a program called LEAD, which is this program. It's around eight, eight, eight uh, colleges across the country, Warden, Stanford, Northwestern, etc. They take 30 minority kids into those programs. And then for one month, you go to campus and like you learn about business. And a lot of the professors like from Kellogg taught us. Uh, all of my counselors were largely like juniors at Northwestern or sophomores at Northwestern. So I love that experience. It was one month in Chicago in the summer, which you know, you, you missed the winter. So I didn't fully know what I was getting myself into. Uh, and yeah, and so like when I got to cop- campus in Northwestern, my counselors were then seniors. And so they became a lot of my mentors. And so they're the ones who told me about SEO, MLT, uh, uh, inroads, like all these diversity focused programs were because of my, my counselors from LEAD, which was a program my mom had saw. And she was like, hey, you should apply to this. She was always about me going to camps in the summer. So like my freshman year of high school, I went to Brown to do a speech class because she realized like, hey, I want your speech to get better. Um, my sophomore year, I went to uh, Columbia and did a one, a three week program at Columbia. And actually some of my best friends are from that program. It was three weeks when we were sophomores. And in my junior year of high school, I went to Northwestern for a week to do a business uh, program as well. And like, so my mom always had me apply these programs partially <laughs> to get me out the house because she was a single parent. It's like it gave her like some break, but also <laughs> because like she wanted me to start looking at college and actually like being on campus and learning like what it meant. I like, stayed in the dorms of Brown, Columbia, and Northwestern. Like I got to actually compare it, meet students. Uh, and she always trusted me. Like I think, you know, that was also part of it. Like me and my mom had a really friendship relationship. And so like she trusted me as a freshman to like go to a different city mm. for a week and live on a college campus. As Henri gets to the end of his high school days, he and his family are deciding where he should go next for college. It turned out to be a bit of a rub between his parents. My dad is a Haitian person. Like Haitians don't even know what HBCUs are. Like we don't really like <laughs> value like black experiences. Like it's about like get the most Americanized experience you can. I learned about that from, from Jamaicans and at Howard. Like there's a different black experience. Yeah, different. it's a very yeah. different experience. Like I had an African-American versus a Caribbean-American mm-hmm. experience, like perspective. And, you know, though I didn't get a full ride to Northwestern, my dad was very much like this is a top 10 school. Like, this is why, like, my family came to this country, why I worked so hard. Like, you need to go there. Mm-hmm. And my mom was like, save your money, go to Morehouse on a full ride and, like, <laughs> use that compound interest to, like, <laughs> and she literally, like, did the model. Like, hey, if you don't spend 125000 like, compound that. And, like, she literally showed me, like, this is how many millions they'll be worth in 40 years. And I think, you know, and, and that's, like, who she is. I think to some extent, and it was the same for business school. I got a full ride to Warden for business school. I got no money to Harvard Business School. So I had the same conversation with my parents about business school. I think for me, ultimately, and I had more of the rich dad mentality of, like, yes, the interest and the money will be meaningful. But, like, if I truly believe in myself, like, this isn't going to be significant in the long term. So you chose Harvard Business School, and you explained why, kind of the access to, to the people, the network, the relationships. First, talk about your experience at Harvard. One, as a, you know, Haitian-American, um, you know, black man, and then 
what we want to get into uh, the story is where you got your taste of investing. I'll take it back. So after Northwestern, I did investment banking for two years at Bank of America. I was the only, the only black person in my group of 45. People in, private, in investment banking recruit pretty early for private equity. Uh, so I started recruiting for private equity, you know, five months into my... Real quick, explain for our listeners, explain exactly what private equity is. So private equity is the use of debt and equity financing to purchase companies. Typically, you're buying a majority stake in a company, so at least 51% of the company. Investment banking, you are facilitating those transactions. Uh, so you're doing the work to allow private equity people to do the work or to take companies public um, or to give them debt, etc. So even though I was at a black home private equity firm, I still had a ton of friends of all races uh, and that, you know, living in New York, that's very easy. Um, and so, you know, I started recruiting, you know, this is like pre-George Floyd. So you look at, you know, Andreessen, like Chris Lyons is now the first general partner at Andreessen. You look at all these like top funds that, you know, there are no black yeah. people, period, no. at the top. And that's like where the Harlem Capital Intern Program began. And so like that March of 18, mm. we like hired four interns largely to help us prepare to fundraise in the summer. Uh, and to like build the, the model and build the deck and get everything ready. Uh, and then, you know, now we're 11 classes in, but the intern program really was just to help us fundraise and we didn't know <laughs> it would become like one of our like golden childs of the firm. Um, and so, yeah, then we, we, we launched the fund between our first and second year of school, which was June of 2018. We raised $3 million that summer, which like to us felt like a lot, but we came back to campus like, hey, we had a great summer, met a lot of people, but like $3 million, you know, typical fund management's two and 20, 2% management fee. So 2% of 3 million, $60,000. Like we didn't go to Harvard Business School to split $60,000 fees. And so we actually started recruiting full time again in the fall because we were like, we haven't, like, we don't have enough money to do this. Like this is not gonna work. Um, you know, we weren't like wealthy people before coming to school. And so we didn't have like savings like that. And then so we started recruiting and in September, a month into recruiting, we got our first million dollar check. Uh, and that million dollar check came from one of the titans of private equity, one of the creators of private equity at KKR. Uh, and that for us was a moment where we like stopped recruiting. You know, we went from three to four million, but like that million was like 10 million. We're like, if this person, this billionaire, is to give us a million dollars, like, like we got, like, you know, we got to believe in ourselves. And I always tell people like, sometimes somebody has to believe in you before you believe in yourself. Like we believed in ourselves because we did it. But like, once we got that million, it was like, like, wow, we're like really underestimating. Why do you think the the, the person gave you that million dollar check? What was, was it your presentation? Did, did you ever know? Like, I mean, it's a variety of things, right? We, I'd had two calls with them and then we met them actually at the Harvard club in New York in the basement. Uh, Cause like we didn't have an office that summer. So like I called up a friend who was a member and said, Hey, can you reserve a conference room with the Harvard club? So I can like, look like we actually like, you know, are legit. <laughs> <laughs> and he actually had to, I had to call him because when we got there, they wouldn't let me in because I'm not a member. So he had to come and like let us in and then leave before this person came for us to present. You got to do what you got to do. Uh, and yeah, like, you know, I remember they told us like, hey, we thought about giving you guys a quarter million or half a million. But like we wanted to do something that we thought would be really meaningful and like could push you guys to the next level. So like I, I fully and I tell them this all the time. Like, I fully appreciate like that they took that risk and understood like a quarter million was a lot. That would have been our biggest check, but a million is like a statement, right? And for us, to, and they let us put their picture in our deck. And for us to be able to say like, this person gave us a million dollars, our first million dollar check, like that's like a statement. And that pushes the bar up because what you realize is when you're fundraising, people always want to like know what other people are doing, right? And they kind of like know where they are. Like, okay, like I'm worth this much. He's worth that much. Like they know you, I don't know you. Like we literally had people tell us like, hey, how much did Willie, who was our boss, give you? 
I'll do half of what he did, even if they were worth the same amount or worth more, because basically their perspective is like, he was your boss. He was your first check. He knows you more than I like for like, if he's going to take that level of risk, I'm going to take slightly less risk because like, I don't know you as well as he does. Right. And so once people start to push up and say, I'm gonna give you a million bucks. Like now when you talk to other billionaires or other rich people who know them, cause they all know each other. Right. It kind of becomes like a matching game. Like, okay, well, cool. Like, you know, I'm either worth less or less, worth more than that person. Like, let me match, let me do slightly less. And so it actually is really significant and really important. I think a lot of people don't understand like that dynamic of how rich people operate and <laughs> the money doesn't really matter for them. It's just, it's just a pegging contest. <laughs> like, and they just, they, they kind of know like where they stack and where they are. Um, and then they, they match people based off that. So it is really important to like get people to put up more money. And that million dollars was a game changer for us. After the break, how that first million-dollar check paved the way for many more to come, and how Henri and Harlem Capital are working to help diverse and underrepresented entrepreneurs achieve that same milestone. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. More from our interview next. Support for Diverse Disruptors Season 2 comes from your membership and Generator, a platform for the creative economy that connects startup founders, musicians, and artists. Information can be found at generator.com. Support for Diverse Disruptors Season 2 comes from your membership and Verizon, helping 1 million small businesses through its Small Business Digital Ready program. This online curriculum is designed to give small businesses the tools to succeed in today's digital world. More information at citizenverizon.com. Support for Diverse Disruptor Season 2 comes from your membership and Northwestern Mutual. Northwestern Mutual is making investments and supporting programs that create a diverse and inclusive tech and entrepreneur community locally and nationally. Information on tech advancement, venture investments, and careers at innovation.nm.com. Support for Diverse Disruptors Season 2 comes from your membership and from UW-Milwaukee. UWM believes innovative ideas don't only belong to business majors. The UWM Lubar Entrepreneurship Center aims to help students in all majors develop creative ideas, advance careers, and get startups started. UWM.edu. We're back on Diverse Disruptors Season 2 and my conversation with Henri Pierre-Jacques of Harlem Capital. If you're unfamiliar with the venture capital world, don't worry. You don't need to be an expert to understand what Harlem Capital is trying to do here and why it's so innovative. And one important thing to understand is that venture capital isn't charity, isn't a handout, it's an investment. It's all about making money at the end of the day. Now, back to our conversation. So talk about uh, um, Harlem Capital, which is, has a focus on underrepresented founders or Harlem Arlen Hampton called underestimated founders. When you approach investors, you tell them, like, I want to invest in diverse founders. What was, when you're raising funds, raising money for those funds, did you, did you have any, uh, you know, eyebrows raised or like? I mean, of course, the whole, the whole hair, the whole wig came off. Right. Like, <laughs> um, I mean, fund one was 18 months. It was a long, long haul. And a lot of it was trying to convince people of the market. Right. Like, did the market exist? Like, and even, I mean, the hardest people to pitch were actually people of color. Really? Or like, you know, we, a lot of us don't believe in ourselves. 
right? And we've been trained and battered over the years. Like, I mean, you see this with service, right? You, there's a lot of studies that like black people don't treat black people who are customers service-wise better than white people. Like there's tons of like studies on like how, why minorities treat each other the way they do, right? And so I think like, you know, part of it was like, we're literally trying to convince you that we can find 30 people of color and women in the entire US, 330 million people that we think are venture backable. And some people fundamentally, like regardless of the data, regardless of like if they even were a person of color or woman entrepreneur who we were trying to find, felt like they were unique and that there were not 30 of them in the entire <laughs> country to invest, right? So it was it was a slog. And like you, you kind of like think to yourself, like, I don't really know what else to do to convince you. And so we stopped. Like, you know, I think a lot of people and fund managers who are first time, you just want to convince people like to believe in it. And to some extent, like you just, you we're just like, you know, you have to first believe in diversity as a thesis. Let's just fast forward to basically last year, about a year ago, you know, George Floyd murder and that kind of changed the dynamics of the country. I guess you can call it a racial reckoning. Um, feels like it's still kind of going on. I don't know how long it always goes on. It doesn't stop. Do you feel like that traumatic incident affected your fundraising? Affected absolutely. Yeah, it affected every. I mean, it had you know. Obviously, I'm only 30 years old, but I, I, you know, my grandfather was born in 1933, and we've had like it has to be one of the biggest days in American history, like a racial perspective, mm -hmm. like MLK, civil rights. Like I mean, it's it just like the impact it had in the country uh, is just it's uncomprehendable like that combined with obviously COVID, i think it was like a double inflection point but like it had tons of impact and you saw a change happen at a rate that it's never happened before and part of the reason that we actually moved our fundraise up to october of last year was because of that like for sure we had conversations in august and september with probably 40 to 50 investors and it was very clear that momentum was there and you have to know like as a somebody who's asking for capital you have to understand the power of momentum Right. And so we were actually early, like we haven't actually called fund two yet. We're calling fund two in July. So we closed early, but like we knew based off these conversations, one, the corporate money was going to be spent and we knew it would be spent quickly. And it's not going to, you know, who knows if it comes back <laughs> Two, the investors who we had been talking to, you know, we're all like racially awakened, awakened or what I call white guilt to some extent. And so we knew the momentum was there. And so we went back to our investors and said, Hey, we're not fully deployed on fund one yet. But we had all these conversations. We felt very confident we can raise this fund extremely quickly and oversubscribe. We want to start to raise now. Like we don't want to wait until we need the capital next year in 2021. But I think George Floyd definitely had a massive impact on us and a ton of funds. Like what people always ask is like, how do you feel about all these new diverse fund managers and diverse diversity focused funds? I'm like, we're so far away. Like we have 10, 20, 30 funds focused on 70% of the population. Like we're so far away from saturation. And I also don't mm -hmm. view them as competition. Like, I want us all to win. I'm only investing in 10 companies a year. Like I don't believe there's only <laughs> 10 diverse or women founders a year to be mm -hmm. backed by. Like, I need other people to support the other founders that we can invest in. You want to see your your community win, and like we're all at a point like we're all winning. And so I just and I do the same thing. I I've introduced three of my friends to, to Apple for investment as well. Like you just want to see people win. And so I think that less mm -hmm. like competitive mentality of like hey like just focus on you. If you're the best, you will win. I, I was talking to somebody about this yesterday. Like, you don't become a founder unless you fundamentally think you are better than everybody else at getting something done. Or like, it's kind of like it's implied egotism or implied confidence. Like, otherwise, you're not like you wouldn't do what you're doing, right? And so, my perspective is like, I think I'm better at doing this than anybody else. Otherwise, I wouldn't start Harlem Capital.
right? And so I'm gonna, I want other people to succeed. I'm not gonna worry about them trying to beat me or take me down. Like I'm gonna focus on me because I only did this because I thought I was better in the first place. And let me like help you win and grow and like help me compete and push me to be even better and better. And that's just like the mentality I've always had. I always try to surround myself with people who have that mentality of like, we're all gonna win. Like if I do what I'm supposed to do, like I'm gonna win. But I wanna see other people succeed. And like that, I think that's really important. And it's something I've seen as like an impediment to the black community because oftentimes we are the only one. And so we feel a sense of like competitiveness if somebody else comes into the room. Mm. So we don't want to bring you into the room because we know when there's two of us, there's an issue for a lot of people. Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, I, I say like, we seem to like, we want to fight over breadcrumbs and I'm like, I don't want to fight over breadcrumbs. I want a whole, I want a whole loaf of bread and there's, a, there's plenty of- I want the bakery. Yeah, there's, there's enough for everybody, you know. Let's talk about um, an issue Snowflake kind of brought it up, uh, Chief Executive Officer Frank Slootman, and I've heard it from other uh, white-led VCs recently during this whole George Floyd thing, like, I only invest in merit, merit, merit. And it got me thinking, like, that term was never used when you're only investing in white men. It only it started popping up of saying, well, we got to consider the merit of diverse founders and stuff. I'm like why is that now like an issue is like you invest if it's a good person most of the time you said it's a relationship thing at the end of the day and most of the startups fail at it in the, the day so it can't be really the idea of this whole thing i feel like it's an excuse not to invest but what's your thoughts on that i feel like it's, a, it's an excuse because they don't want to invest they say that to get out of investing right one of the one of the the projects i did at harvard business school which was professor paul gompers who has one of the largest uh research on founders and VC funders over a 20 year period, right? So he's got thousands of data points and we had this in our pitch deck. And basically there's an extremely strong correlation between the race and gender of VC, uh, VCs to the race and gender of VC back founders, right? Like it's almost like 0 0.8, 0 0.9 correlation. And so you just begin to realize like, that's really hard to change, Like you can do all this talk and show like, oh, diversity leads to higher returns. But like fundamentally, like people are backing like who they are. And so until we get more people of color, which is why we continue to do our intern program is to get more investors of color because we can't solve this problem alone. We need more investors of color across the street. Like, I do believe that's the fastest way. Like we have to create our own businesses. Like we can't keep trying to beg these corporations to make these differences. And, a lot, and, and honestly, from a millennial and Gen Z, like we don't even want to work there anyway. <laughs> like people don't even want to work in these businesses anymore. Like it's not interesting. And like, and people just don't want to work there. It's why we have such high demand for a lot of these these diverse uh, focused funds or diverse companies. And so I think we're getting to a point where like a lot of people, particularly of my generation, like we're just tired of thinking about it. I'm tired of like trying to convince the Snowflake CEO to like care about diversity. My final question for Henri is a, it's a practical one. What advice does he have as someone who has built and continues to build this intentional fund with a mission to create wealth among diverse founders? What would he say to someone who wants to go the startup route? Like I'm a big believer in professional development, big believer in like paying to like continue to invest in yourself. Like whether that's business school or master's program, like you have to continue to elevate yourself uh, and get and elevate yourself also by surrounding yourself with people who are better than you. And oftentimes these programs do attract top talent from every area of the country or your area. So that's like my first advice because that's literally what like got me to where I am. Like, I don't think I would be where I am without those programs. I would have never gone to Northwestern if I never did lead. I didn't even know what Northwestern was. I would have never gone to ICB if I didn't do SEO. I didn't know black private equity firms existed. Right. And so these programs opened my eyes to things I never even knew existed, even though I was in these like elite rooms. I still didn't know they existed. Um, 
So that's the first thing, like really that's probably been the biggest impact on me. And then I would say secondly, like you got to find sponsors, like who are in your cities, like who is the top black or woman or Latino and how do you find ways? Now, obviously you have to empathize and understand like when there's that one black person in Milwaukee, who's like the multi millionaire, everybody's obviously reached out to them. Right. So you got to find out like, mm. how do I get in without like sending this email? Like, Hey, I want you to be my mentor. Like, it's just not going to work. Right. And it's like, whether it's like, Oh, they're, they're on a nonprofit. You join that, you get in the circle, but like, you got to find a sponsor, somebody who you want to be, who's going to like give you some level of like guidance or some introductions. It's really hard for us because oftentimes there's few of us and those few people are bombarded and feel overwhelmed. And oftentimes we'll push away. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a tough, but like, I think having a sponsor and doing the programs, regardless of where you are geographically for me it was detroit like can get you access to things that you would never get in your communities um, because there's only so many of us in our community if you've gone to levels that we want to go uh, and that's just the reality so that that would be like the two things i would i would personally focus on cool and uh final question where do you see yourself in harlem capital in five or ten years from now yeah, I, mean, I want to be a multi-asset global firm, right? Like I already talked to my classmates who are from Africa. Like at some point we'll have an Africa office and we'll focus on Africa and I'll tap my classmates from uh, Harvard. But I think like need to be done. Like those are things I think about, like just like more ways to create wealth. Like, you know, one of my quotes is like, I want to create the most black Latino billionaire or millionaires of all time. Right. <laughs> and so like, I just think about like how, everything for me is like scale. Like, I want to do things at scale. Big thanks to Henri Pierre Jacques co-founder of Harlem Capital. Since our interview, Harlem Capital has created a database of diversity-focused and diverse-led funds from around the country, launched an angel program that teaches diverse, credited investors seeking opportunities to invest their capital in underrepresented founders, and this is in addition to them raising $134 million for their second fund. Coming up on the next episode of Diverse Disruptors Season 2, we meet a Wisconsin woman who's working to do the same thing as Henri, but on a local scale. Dana Guthrie is the managing director at Gateway Capital. It is a Wisconsin-based venture capital firm that seeks founders that are willing to grind for the opportunity to create generational wealth and to better Milwaukee by cultivating an ecosystem of successful founders and investors. Guthrie recently led the firm through its first round of investment to the tune of $12 million. First of all, let me say that my mom is like my biggest fan and worst critic all mm. in one. She used to always say to me, um, and I don't know if I was like a, a selfish kid or what, but she used to always tell me the world does not revolve around you. <laughs> no one cares. No one's going to give you anything. The world doesn't revolve around you. And I, I remember that sticking with me just like growing up. I'm like... Every time you want to throw a tantrum or you feel like, you know. You deserve something. Yeah, like, ah, that's mine. It's like, no one cares. The world (laughs) does not revolve around you. Go out and get it. On our next episode, she shares her story of growing up in St. Louis, attending school at Milwaukee School of Engineering, and most of all, why she continues to invest in Wisconsin. Please make sure to subscribe to Diverse Disruptors so you don't miss our next episodes. We're not even halfway through the second season and have many more stories to share on Diverse Disruptors. Diverse Disruptors Season 2 is presented by University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Northwestern Mutual, and Generator, with support from Verizon, United Way's Tequity, and Alverno College. 
with handcrafted sonic inspiration from the License Lab. Diverse Disruptors is hosted by Tariq Moody. Executive produced by Nate Imig and audio engineering by Kenny Perez. Segment producing by Salam Fatayer and 88.9's web editor is Evan Retleski. Radio Milwaukee's marketing team is led by director Sarah Lahr with creative and coordinating support by Aaron Bagada. Community engagement by Maddie Reardon. Dory Zori is 88.9's program director and Kevin Sucker is our executive director. Of course, biggest thanks to our members for making this and all content from Radio Milwaukee possible. If you're interested in learning more about Radio Milwaukee membership, visit radiomilwaukee.org and click the orange heart. And while you're there, check out our other podcasts, including Diverse Disruptors Season 1. That's at radiomilwaukee.org slash podcasts. Diverse Disruptors Season 2 is an original podcast production of 88.9 Radio Milwaukee.